You're listening to the Inner Field Trip Podcast, designed to help highly sensitive people and deep feelers explore unconscious biases so they protect their energy, stand on the side of justice, and become better ancestors. My name is Lisa Renee Hall, your host and tour guide. In this episode, I'm in conversation with Paul Zelizer. I met Paul virtually in 2015 when a mutual colleague published an essay I had written. I think the title was How the Certainty of Patterns Helped Me to Something Around My Faith or Something. Anyways, I'll link to that essay in the show notes. Paul read it, reached out to me, and we had a conversation by phone. 2015 was the beginning of my transition out of the tech industry where I had been known as a digital diva, podcasting expert, virtual summit expert. I received so many awards and accolades being a woman in tech, but yet that wasn't enough. And I was searching at that time for what was next. Paul saw potential. And even though I didn't know where I was headed next, Paul was always in my corner, encouraging me, affirming me, and acknowledging me. I marveled at how Paul was not only able to step forward and see the strengths in each individual, but also in how he was able to bring people together in community. It hasn't always been easy for Paul. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to him about the value of creating coalition, especially when you are seeking culture change. Paul shares in this interview that you just can't try to change culture on your own. And he shares some of the best practices that you should use if you're seeking to change culture within community. Paul will be the first to admit that he hasn't done it elegantly. When building coalition, especially containing diverse voices and diverse opinions, there will be issues that will pop up along the way. Sometimes those issues are easy to resolve. Other times it descends into utter chaos where it can damage the health and longevity of a community. Paul, however, has an inner circle that he relies on. So anytime his own unconscious biases come forward, he's able to consult with the various individuals in his inner circle to be able to navigate through these tough tough community times. What I really enjoy about Paul is that he's able to see his own mistakes. And when it comes to building community, especially between Black people and white people, even if a white person identifies with an oppressed group but has skin color privilege, that part of building safe spaces where all can gather and be inspired Its leader has to be in a constant arena of wanting to improve themselves and not do so in a bypassing sort of way, not do so using spiritual bypassing and toxic positivity, but doing so by reaching into his shadow, identifying the unconscious biases so that he can be a better person. You're going to glean a lot of tips from Paul as he shares with you his best practices and the things that he's learned along the way. I cannot wait to see the ways in which you will be inspired to build community 
as you step forward in becoming a better ancestor. Let me share more with you about Paul. Paul Zelizer is one of the first business and marketing coaches to focus on the needs of conscious entrepreneurs and social impact businesses. He runs a global coaching practice supporting conscious entrepreneurs and growing their businesses to the next level while staying true to their deepest integrity. He also works with leaders to help them increase the transformational impact that they have in their organizations and in the world. Paul is the former director of social media for Wisdom 2.0, one of the premier mindfulness brands in the world. In 2017, he founded Awarepreneurs because he saw the need for more honest conversations about combining the power of conscious business practices with the dynamics of social impact movements. In addition to conscious entrepreneurship, Paul is passionate about just about anything you can do in the mountain high country. He's also passionate about power yoga, dark chocolate, sustainable living, and he's ecstatic about poetry, as well as deep centering breaths. He lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. You can find out more about Paul by going to paulzelizer.com. Zelizer is spelled Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. And I say Z because I am Canadian. Here's Paul. So, Paul, great to have you. Thanks for having me, Lisa. It's so great to be here. As I said in the introduction, you're someone who's near to my heart. We met in, I think it was 2015, when one of our colleagues, Mark Silver, posted one of my essays on his blog. And then from there, we've been strong supporters of each other's work. So thank you so much for being in conversation with me. I'm thrilled to be here. I've so enjoyed our connection and also just celebrating you returning to podcasting, kind of like (laughs) another iteration of Lisa Renee Hall and podcasting. And I don't know if you've talked about the previous iteration, but I'm celebrating your return in this very wonderful way. And it was a nudge by my, I brought on a new director of operations to help me stay organized as I Yeah, I try to stay organized, but you know, I love spontaneity. And she was like, why don't you have a podcast? I was like, yeah, why don't I have a podcast? I know a lot of fabulous people. So it's good to be back into podcasting. I love it. Love it. So one of the things that, Paul, you've done a lot of work regarding social justice. You've worked with some great organizations. You have a men's group that gets together to hold each other accountable. You lead a global community of conscious entrepreneurs and social impact businesses called Awarepreneurs. So before we get into more of your projects, I'd like to know who are your ancestors that have influenced you? Who are they in your lineage, both living and passed on, that helped to inform what you do today? It's a great question, Lisa. I come from a background of progressive, even activist, Eastern European Jews. And there's actually a fascinating conversation in my family. I grew up thinking we were Polish Jews. And then there was some family research that said we came from the Ukraine. And now very recently in the past two months, my daughter actually is doing some work and is connected to the Holocaust Museum and found actually that we could pinpoint a lot of people in the Warsaw ghetto area in Warsaw in Poland. So 
depending on when you knew me, I would say, I'm a Polish Jew. And then I said, I, oh no, we actually found out we're Ukrainian Jews, mostly with a little Polish. And now it turns out, no, it looks like actually we thought the Zelizer name got changed on my family coming through Ellis Island. And it turns out there were a whole contingent, dozens and dozens and dozens of Zelizers in Warsaw. And how many other Zelizers can there be? So anyway, activist, progressive Jews. I like to tell the story of my grandmother when she was 80 years old, organizing busloads of women from New York, where she lived, to go to Washington, D.C., to demonstrate for the women's right to choose, right? And we have family friends that literally explicit socialist Jewish summer camps in the region that I grew. I didn't go to that camp, but the sense of like, in Judaism, there's a frame called Tikkun Alum, or sometimes just there's a, actually a magazine called Tikkun. And that means to work towards the repair of the world. And as Jews, having especially post-Holocaust Jews, but just thousands of years of oppression and just the fact that I'm even here, just like the fact that you're even here is a miracle. And people had to work very, very, very diligently for the fact that Paul Zelizer is even alive on the planet, and many of my ancestors do not exist, including all the Zelizers in Warsaw, Poland. They didn't leave, they're dead. So that lineage of being raised in a Jewish community post-Holocaust and starting to learn about never again, which is a very key frame in more progressive, in all Jewish communities, or many anyway, but certainly in progressive Jewish communities, that's literally what I grew up in. We were told it was our job to pay attention to fascism and oppression and racism and genocide and to work to our best ability to create a world where there's less and less and less. And someday that just isn't something that's happening on planet Earth. We were charged to spend our lives thinking about that and acting about that. I'm going to ask you more about your lineage in just a moment, but this question just popped up for me, which is what makes you nervous about the times that we're in right now and what gives you hope? Well, as Jews, if we're paying attention, we've seen this before. Literally, Donald Trump, that photo where the tear gas was shot to clear a pathway for him to walk in front of a church with a Bible in front of a church, it was exactly out of a playbook of Adolf Hitler, right? Wow. He's, we are literally, we're seeing imagery that was used in the propaganda and it's very consciously being recycled. It's not an exaggeration and it's not a joke. I get to say this as a Jew, when I say that Trump and the people who are acting from that place are taking pages out of the playbook of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, that is not an exaggeration. I'm talking very literally the propaganda styles and the sense of what's called shock and awe. Let's just hit them with so much insanity so quickly that we couldn't possibly respond. The, the intent is to kind of beat us down into fight, flight, or freeze response, where we basically just get overwhelmed and shut down and go into one of those mechanisms. And that's directly out of the Nazi playbook. So We've seen this before. We saw way before the Nazis. We've seen it 3,000 years or 2,000 years ago. We certainly saw it in Germany during the Nazi era. This is literally out of that playbook. And that's the fact that it's gotten this far is very scary. What gives me hope is the sense of just like 
Well, you and I, Lisa, we've had some hard conversation and been through some complicated things. And your lineage is very different than my lineage, right? And you're a woman and I'm a man. And, like, and we've navigated and stayed in touch and like shared thoughts and support the cross-cultural and just what some of my mentors with Desiree Attaway and Erica Hines and particularly Nicole Lee, who's been a fabulous mentor of mine in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, they call it creating coalitions. And what a coalition does, it's hard for Lisa and Nicole and Desiree and Erica to have ongoing relationships. And yeah, with people like yourself, and I'm blessed with many of them, we understand that one group, the Jews alone, can't change what's going on. But the fact that Jews are in coalitions, we tend to show up with some particularly strong skill sets and we know how to build networks. And it's a lot of Jewish lawyers who are really, really good at taking on some of these kind of legal issues and other things like that. And then there's things we're not very good at. We have blind spots. So those coalition spaces are incredibly dynamic and are powerful spaces to sit in. And I'm so grateful to be a part of those kinds of spaces. And it's the most hopeful thing in my world right now. I agree. Like, as I look towards the future, I ask myself, what would it look like if it didn't include bias? And one of those things is to create connections, coalitions, as you say, and friendships that help to cross those barriers. Because as you said, you and I, we've had some, <laughs> we've had a couple. Some bobs. <laughs> and that's something that I know is going to happen when relationships deepen. And I was just going to give credit. There's specific people like I was your second patron, right? Yep. And Nicole and, and other folks like that more online, but also living here in this place in New Mexico, which has the highest proportion of people of color in the United States. And having lived here since 1993, this place and the people who live here and the lineages and how people think about community and diversity and inclusion is different than any other place in the U.S. that I know of. And I've learned so, so much, not just in a theoretical way, but embodied day-to-day kids going to school with each other and having businesses together and being activists together. Not that it's always easy, but this place has taught me so much and I'm so grateful. I'm grateful as well. And one of the things that I want to point out is that you identify with a group that's frequently oppressed by the dominant culture, by a culture of white supremacy, and you have skin color privilege. So how do you balance that nuance, especially when it comes to standing on the side of justice? Yeah, that's a great question, Lisa. And I I would say more than in addition to skin color, you know, I'm a man and I got to graduate school with no debt, right? Because of my family's economic status. Um, So many forms of privilege, not just one. It's a complicated question and I don't know that I have a simple answer for you. What I can say is I try to pay attention. One of the things I try to pay attention to is when and what's the context for bringing up. Part of the difficulty, it's both you get a pass as a Jew. Like If you kind of know what to look for, you could kind of tell that I'm a Jew, both from (laughs) my look and my mannerisms. But like it's so easy for me to pass as just a normal white guy, right? master's degree and owns his own business and 
I'm not worried about not having a place to live or food in the fridge. Like I'm not uber wealthy. I'm not 1%, but I'm certainly not struggling to think about how do I get food today? So the kinds of being a Jew and it not being, it's almost in some ways like being somebody who has some sort of disability that's not immediately apparent, maybe yes. like a, an immune system kind of thing that, but you look healthy. I don't look like somebody who would being a marginalized group and yet it is. And like, how do I show up understanding that I pass in so many ways for being on the privileged end of almost I'm very physically well and I run half marathons in the mountain at 52 years old. So ableism on every measure of marginalized group, I'm on the privileged size except one and that one's not very visible. I have to disclose that for somebody to know. So when is it important, given how many times I sit in that privileged seat, like, do I really need to step into a circle and say, well, I'm a Jew. I know what it's like to be a marginalized person. Well, in many ways, I don't, because that's not something that is as clear as, let's say, race or gender. Like, just relax, dude. Yes, anti-Semitism is a very real thing. And do I need to charge into the conversation with somebody who I just met and talk about my marginalized experience? Usually, no. It's much more appropriate given how many times I'm in the privileged seat to come from that place of listening, learning how to be an ally to this particular person and their sort of embodied experience and what they're dealing with. And if there is a genuine coalition spirit and somebody really is committed to the work, they're going to hear I'm a Jew. And at some point, like when I first got to New Mexico, I'll give you an example. It's not common now, but back in the day, people would use the phrase, we're going to Jew you down. In other words, in terms of negotiating for pricing, let's say you were buying a used car or something, we're just Jew them down, right? And a lot of the people saying that were Latinx people because that's who is the majority in New Mexico. Was it immediately important for me to like, as a white guy, to immediately jump on that with a lot of intensity? No. What I started to do was to talk to my friends who were Latinx and start to say, hey, look, I'm listening and I'm showing up and I'm learning and this is hard for me as a Jew and as an ally in this way, can I ask you to help me start to do something about this? Because it doesn't feel good and it's a really negative stereotype about Jews. But like, how do I show up and can I show up even in that moment with the awareness that in almost every other way you could possibly ask the question, I have so much more privilege than that person who in that case is being quite harmful and biased without necessarily meaning to because that was just the culture when I got here in the 90s. And like I said, since then, I don't think I've heard that expression in 10 or 15 years. But I worked with my community and showed up through time. And in our circles, it started to change how I did that mattered because I could have done a lot of harm by being really intense and disappearing the fact that the people that I was in community with had had much more active and harmful experience in their embodied experience. Even though that was hard to hear, my life wasn't in danger when somebody said it. And almost everybody I know in many other communities I was sitting in, they had had life-threatening situations based on their marginalized experience. Yeah. And 
one of the things you mentioned over and over is coalition community building. I know that you, for a very long time, worked with agencies that focused on marginalized people. And so you saw on the front line what oppression was doing to some of the most, again, marginalized individuals in community. You also worked with Wisdom 2.0 and co-founded another community on Facebook as well. You are a founder of Awarepreneurs. And so I'm sure you have been involved in several situations where community and coalition breaks down. Now that doesn't happen. Are you kidding? (laughs) I've borne witness to some of those breaking down. And so share with me, how do you deal with that? And these were some serious stuff that came up. And I know I'm piquing the listener's interest. But how do we manage coalition when it does break down? And what has been your experience? Great question, Lisa. There's a couple things that come to mind. One is it's easier. Like one of the things I so appreciate about Nicole and Erica and Desiree, when they talk about coalition building, they're really explicit. They're like, it's hard. Let's say, for instance, Lisa, you're in a circle of Black women and Conflict's probably going to come up around that, right? Whether it's an activist circle or personal growth. Not that conflict couldn't happen, but it's more likely to happen if it looks more like you and I in community, right? And there were all sorts on the gender spectrum and different races. It just, coalitions are harder to do well. Real, genuine, diverse, and inclusive communities. And I so appreciate them saying that because I had many experiences in them in so fortunate to be in all different kinds of inclusive communities. And I see what they're talking about. I love it about them that they don't pretend. Like if we expect that they're going to be just super easy and it's supposed to be rainbows and unicorns and diversity <laughs> and inclusion is like, is so much super fun and easy. And like, there's just so much history there. Of course, it's hard. And to just normalize that, I'm so grateful for mentors who have done that for me. It's going to take more work. It's also more powerful. So it's worth the work. And in many ways, the kinds of things that you are really passionate about and are working on so beautifully and diligently, they can't shift without coalition communities. They really need them to truly start to see the kind of structural change given who's driving the systems that we have and who's been excluded and who's sitting in positions of power and getting people from both sides of or the various places in the continuum around the particular issues that we're trying to organize around. It doesn't change until you have effective coalition. So it's worth it. But it was a huge lesson for me to just realize they're harder and you're not like stupid or broken, Paul, that you've had some pretty hard experiences in that. And I'm very grateful for their wisdom and mentorship. The other thing I'd say is to let go of my experience or preconceived notions of what they're supposed to look like and more come to it from a place of values rather than, hey, I've got the solution or, (laughs) but rather, hey, Lisa, what are your values and what are my values? And when we start to connect, like in New Mexico, oftentimes difference can be navigated when we're putting in the benefit of the children first. Most of us care about our children, right? Yes, yes. And when kids live in a community and somebody, even though I'm a Jew who originally came from New York City and grew up in the white suburbs, 
I've been here since 1993. I don't think I'm going anywhere. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Somebody got sick and family. Of course, I'd go take care of them. But I don't. Have, this is the highest concentration of people I love anywhere on planet Earth. I love this place. I'm not planning on going here. I'm trying to do good things for the community. My daughter lives here. My friends, my professional network. When I show up from that place of like, I'm really trying to do what's best for the kids and I have some ideas, but tell me your ideas. I care about your kids. I hope you care about my kid. And we only got so many resources in a place like New Mexico. How do we care for them given their diversity with the best possible attention and love and activism and rolling up our sleeves as we know how? That's a different thing than somebody who's coming in with all the solutions. And that's a very harmful way and it gets in the way of those coalitions working. And yet I see that a lot. I've got this hot topic that I think is super important to address. And I think I have the answer is a real, that just is like, let me just write it down on a piece of paper. It's only a matter of time before it blows up in your face compared to Hey, I care about the children. I care about these certain values. Tell me your values. Let's find some matches and let's work from there towards solutions that make sense to you, make sense to me. And you know, let's put them on the table and find the ones that fit the values that we're finding in common. Those coalitions tend to have less conflict and there's more room to make human-to-human connections. So when conflict does come up, we have a container to navigate them as opposed to when it's somebody pushing an agenda and not spending the time to create that container, then when the conflict happens, it blows up and community falls apart. So it sounds like that coalition and community rests better when it's focused on a purpose rather than a personality. Yes. Great way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. And I've seen this happen in even Facebook groups where if it's the personality, then everything is shaped around their values or what they want and their goals. And then the group implodes. Whereas if it's focused on purpose, then we can all return to that, as you've said. And that becomes the thing that we center ourselves in. That when conflict happens, it's like, okay, remember our mission? Remember our purpose? Remember our values and beliefs? And that should be what helps recenters and bring us back together particularly for the people on the more privileged end of the spectrum, the white people, the men, people with more economic means. When things get hard, you see fragility tend to show up in the space a lot. But I came for like four meetings. Why are you mad at me? (laughs) Right? I baked the cookies or I did whatever, right? I did the things and like, and now you're mad at me too. I'm going to take my ball and go home, right? It's really easy for people with histories of privilege and backgrounds of privilege to play the I'm going to take my ball and go home game. And when you have the values and the sense of like we're in community together in some purposeful way, I don't want to take my ball and I might have feelings of wanting to take my ball and go home. It might be really uncomfortable. But like my daughter goes to this school or like we live in this neighborhood together or we're trying to build for me right now in New Mexico, we're working on building truly inclusive entrepreneurial ecosystems. And even though we're a very diverse state, our history of being truly inclusive in our entrepreneurial ecosystems, we've got a lot of work to do. 
and this hard work because it's people's livelihood and we're dealing with the pandemic and there's fear and we went off an economic cliff. This is not an easy conversation, but we all who are working on this really care about this place. We've been here, we were either born here or been here for decades. We're not going anywhere. We're all entrepreneurs. So let's keep staying with it because this is who lives here. We're the leaders we've been waiting for. So let's keep rolling up our sleeves and having that conversation because we share that common goal and some values, even if we hit some hard spots. We are going to continue this conversation with Paul Zelizer, founder of Awarepreneurs. But first, let's take a moment to hear this sponsored message. I was first introduced to Lisa on Instagram when someone saw a post I wrote in the White Supremacy and Me Challenge. I was directed to a story that literally had minutes left on it. And everything that she spoke about in that story was exactly what I was going through in my own anti-racist journey, which had started when I was taking Black history classes in sociology and psychology. However, it wasn't until I started Lisa's creative writing prompts that things really started to shift within me. And it all started with the first prompt I chose, which was based on my own white supremacy. And I remember the first question was, how do I feel knowing that white supremacy lives within me? And it made me realize all the space I take up in this world as a white person, how I am not afraid of police, how I have gotten away with being abusive towards police, how they joke with me, how I walk into a store and I think nothing of it, how everyone's happy to see me. These little things that we just take for granted. And it changed me. It's humbled me. It's made me look at who's in the service positions, who's in the more powerful positions, who's blue color, who's white color. My eyes have opened up to so much more working with Lisa about how white supremacy even takes from white people. It is a system based on working and consumption. White supremacy homogenized all European cultures into no culture. So we have no culture. And therefore, we find ourselves stealing from and appropriating cultures of color because they have retained that despite white supremacy trying to take it away. And it's something very acute. Also, white women don't have a sense of camaraderie. We're bred to be competitive. So I'm ever so thankful to Lisa and I support her work because the way that she teaches is with a tough love that is very effective and she seriously wants to see her patrons change. She's not a numbers person. She's not looking to be popular. She is looking to do the work, which is something I resonate with because I think the deeper we can go the more we can unify with each other. And it does take every white person unpacking this privilege in order for us not to be harmful to black and brown people while doing this work. I hope to be a patron of Lisa for the rest of my life and to be supporting her work more and more and more. So thank you for this opportunity to share and I wish Lisa the best on her journey. And we're back 
I'm in conversation with Paul Zelizer. We're talking about coalition and also his background, which informs the way he does his work today. And now I want to move into Paul. What holds us back from being resilient in coalition building? What holds us back in being resilient in going through that discomfort? And it has a lot to do with something that I saw in the most recent Awarepreneur's newsletter around imperfect next steps. Can you share more about what that is and how that came about? Yeah. I've been in a lot of conversations about white supremacy and two different spaces that uh, I do a lot of work in. One is in the personal development space. For instance, Molly Gordon and I, fabulous coach and a master coach and a trainer coach, did an episode for the Awarepreneurs podcast on white supremacy and coaching. And then in the entrepreneurial space, and I use the example here in New Mexico, even though we have a very diverse group who live here, the resources disproportionately go to white leaders in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, even in a place where white people are the minority. So it's a very rich conversation, very alive. And how perfectionism is connected into white supremacy, if you like feel into that, listeners, that sense of like, I'm privileged and I got trained. I have maybe more formal training. If we're talking entrepreneurship, for example, maybe I have an MBA and that person starting a business doesn't, or I work in a small business development center and that entrepreneur who's got the latest idea doesn't have access to that formal system and I'm the gatekeeper. Anyway, you get a sense like I'm the one who the system says is supposed to know. And how that is connected to a sense of things having to be perfect. Think of even the way our school system grades things, right? Not narrative feedback, Paul, that was a great essay, or Lisa, what a creative idea, but you got an A. (laughs) (laughs) It's very linear and very, somebody has the answer and somebody doesn't. The whole system of who gets rewards and benefits, specifically economically, has a lot to do with a sense of perfectionism being tied to people who have privilege, oftentimes called white supremacy. So intentionally starting to talk about perfection and imperfection is something, it's one of my more recent layers of trying to peel back my training as a man, as a white person, as somebody from a fairly economic privileged background. Being like kind of poking the bear (laughs) of perfection in myself. And I wrote a newsletter. It was actually for uh, Paul Zelizer. I used the example from Aware Printer. It was actually for my paulzelizer.com newsletter. And it was called Imperfect Show Notes. And we got some feedback, very deserved. I love podcasting and I love how inclusive it is in general because you don't need the latest Mac Pro to listen. You don't need a fast internet connection. You can have like the lousiest (laughs) device. If there's any way you can get on the internet, you can listen to a podcast. It's way more inclusive than let's say a YouTube channel because video requires actually fairly sophisticated technology, particularly if you look in developing countries. Elsie Escobar talks a lot about this. She's fabulous. Anyway, One way it's not inclusive is around somebody who's hearing impaired, right? Right. So the ideal situation is to do a really nice transcript or there's somewhat sophisticated programs where you like put in your audio and you have it with a reader beneath it, but they're fairly expensive and Awarepreneurs is still a startup. I still make most of my money through paulzelizer.com. 
I don't want to be subsidizing awarepreneurs like four years into our existence. So I didn't feel comfortable spending the money on the full like transcripts, which would be hundreds of dollars every month because we publish episodes now twice a week. So eight, nine episodes a month, it'd be pretty significant expense to get them professionally transcribed or use one of these services. But what I saw is that some people in the podcasting world are doing what are called imperfect show notes. There's a service, the most popular one I know is Otter, like the animal Otter, O-T-T-E-R dot A-I, standing for artificial intelligence. And you plug your audio into there and it uses artificial intelligence to make a transcript. It's imperfect. Like for instance, the podcast is called Awarepreneurs and it doesn't know that word. So it oftentimes will put aware printers or aware I've partners or something like that. It can't even like get the name of the podcast right. But mostly 94% of it, 96% of it is pretty good. And it costs like $10 a month to do 6,000 minutes of transcription. Like, oh, I can do that, right? So it's called imperfect show notes in the podcasting world. And I have this nice, Lisa said this, Paul said this, Lisa said this, Paul said this. Some serious but not catastrophic grammatical errors. And I said, you know what? That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking. I can help make aware printers accessible to somebody who's hearing impaired or doesn't like my mom, doesn't like listening to podcasts. It's not her thing. She would love to have that because she's more of a reader. I was like, for 10 bucks a month, I can do this. Why would I say no to that? The reason I might say no to that is because if I let perfectionism get in the way of being more inclusive, and inclusive is one of my values way more than being perfect. So I wrote this simple newsletter on imperfect show notes. And that was the example. I had to go through some of my like, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm getting better known and this is going to be imperfect. And even the freaking name Awarepreneurs isn't going to get right by the transcription service. (laughs) Can I really do this? And But that's my values, being inclusive. And no, you're not ready to spend $1,500 or $1,000 a month on the real, like what would be awesome with this many episodes, but you can do this and just relax and just do it. (laughs) And then write a newsletter about it in the spirit of kind of being public about a growing edge. And that's the example I used. And the why behind it is like continually trying to unpack my white supremacy and the privilege training I got. And I was like, yep, that, even though I still did it, I had to go through layers of but you're supposed to make it look nice. And how could you possibly put out show notes that are 6% off? You cannot read those notes without noticing there's something off here. And what's off is artificial intelligence. I don't have the resources or the time myself to clean that up. That would become a commitment. I can't in good faith and in taking care of myself deliver with the resources I have right now. But I can do this other thing. And anybody who's reading it with any care can really get the substance of the conversation. The only thing that I needed to do to turn this on was deal with my own perfectionism. And then I chose to write a newsletter about it. Brilliant. And one of the first writing prompts I have patrons work through when they join my community on Patreon is I have them work through a prompt called Battling Perfection. Hmm. Because as you said, perfection is a tool of white supremacy and it teaches white people that they're flawless and pure and perfect. And then it teaches everyone else that unless you try to attain whiteness, you are impure and imperfect and full of flaws. And so 
as I hear about the imperfect show notes, which I'm definitely going to use for my own podcast. <laughs> highly recommend it. Any, any podcasters that are out there, just do it. 10 bucks. On 90, I think it's like eight ninety five or something. I love just it. do it, please. I love it. Love it. <laughs> and so one of my values is to be messy or to stumble bravely. And so in your interviews that you've done through your podcast and all the social impact businesses and entrepreneurs you've met, what are some examples of those who are doing things imperfectly and what has been their results? Oh, goodness. Such a great question, Lisa. We could be here for hours. (laughs) I'm trying to think of which of the many examples feel like they might be most helpful to your listeners. Well, I'll tell a story from you referenced it. I'll talk about it, right? So before Awarepreneurs, there was an earlier iteration of a community that had similar goals, trying to help social entrepreneurs and people who also were bringing in some sort of inner resiliency practices. It grew. We had a Facebook group at one point of like 22,000 people got wildly chaotic with that many people and what started to happen in the polarized environment. And we didn't totally understand it at the time, but because we were a large group, some of the social media dynamics they've been hearing about came into that community without getting into the details of it. I mean, it got very polarized and it blew up. The person I started it with, we had a co-founder divorce. It was not an easy time and it was very messy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of judgment came my way and people were confused and upset. It was really hard. And when that happened, I was like, you know, I have two businesses. Paul Zellizer is how I make most of my money, marketing, coaching, and business coaching for conscious social entrepreneurs. I would make more money. It'd be a lot easier if I just did that. Yes. This, this coalition stuff and trying to build community with, oh God, it's so hard. And I almost just walked away from it, like, screw it. I'm just going to like, take care of myself and play with my kid and go to my mountains. <laughs> but I didn't because it's not culturally we're supposed to be working on tikkun alone. I knew what was coming. I know a lot of people felt very kind of like sideswiped or surprised by what's happening politically around the world, but particularly in the US with the, who's in leadership and what their agenda is. As a Jew, we knew what was coming. Just like many Black people were not surprised by the plays that have been seen in the current leadership around the world and certainly here in the U.S. As Jews, if we're paying attention, we knew what was coming. I knew to some degree what the kind of mess we're in for. I can't just walk away. I could, but I can't just walk away and like, I'm covered. Put your feet up on the coffee table. Where are we going hiking this weekend? That's not who I am, Lisa. (laughs) It was not easy to dust myself off and learn from... And it was very painful. I put a lot of time and energy, got very little money, would have made a lot more money if I had just done my own business. But it's not just about me, mine, and what goes in my bank account. It's about we, it's about us, it's about the children. And there are things at play that no one individual or even one sort of identity group is just too big. And it's so messy and so entrenched in so many ways that the only way I know how to shift it is in these coalition spaces. And I couldn't not dust myself up and try again. And this iteration is working. And this iteration, we have some systems in place that weren't in 
the DNA of what came before. So it was hard. It was worse than hard. It sucked. (laughs) (laughs) So what I would say to listeners is, if you're in that moment of like feeling like, ouch, and that didn't work, and gosh, I don't want to have that kind of pain again, I so empathize with you. And please consider not just giving it up and going back to, I'll just do what's safe and what's kind of taking care of my little, like, I'm going to make sure I have enough to eat and screw the rest of the world. That's not going to get us out of the mess. Humans don't survive if too many of us make that choice. Very, very true. And coalition, I believe, is what's saved you when in the new group, some turmoil popped up with a small group of individuals. And I mean, I witnessed it. I saw it. And you did more than witness. You helped me unpack it, Lisa. You helped me respond. And thank you for that. Yes, yes. And realizing that this is work we cannot do by ourselves. That yes, we can maybe read the book by ourselves or watch the movie by ourselves or go through the writing prompts by ourselves. But we need to do that within community. We have to. If we care about the children, we have to find coalition. There's times when we can't do, if you're like in an incredibly intense trauma healing process or you're like, Caring for an elderly parent who's on their way out. Okay, you get a pass. You just had a baby. All right, maybe this isn't the time to put a time and energy, you know, it's your third kid, right? Or like COVID-19, like totally wiped out your financial well-being and you're not sure how your family's going to eat. You get a pass. If you've got like the basics taken care of, not like getting a new car. (laughs) If you have transportation and food and a roof over your head and you honestly are in any way a moral creature and you're like thinking about it's time to think about more than this comes from my collaborator here in new mexico genevieve chavez mitchell she's always talking about we gotta move out of the way away from me mine to we and ours me mine is not that's what got us into this mess and there is no caring or ethical way to live a life in this time that i can see focused on me and mine to a large degree. The only way to live an ethical life that I know on this planet, what's happening right now, is to think about we and ours and the children and the future generations. And if that's not on your radar, like I'm not going to like, like go do your life, but get out of the way. Lisa's got work to do. I got work. My job is to go find the we, the ours, the future generations and say, what do we do? It's a mess. What do we do with the mess? My last question to you, Paul, is this, as I mentioned before, one of the things that I ask my followers and patrons to do is to stumble bravely. And it's really caught on where they now kind of say farewell by saying stumble bravely. Oh, how sweet. (laughs) I love that. So my question to you is this, as our final question is, what tips do you have to that person listening right now? who wants to become anti-bias, anti-racist, and anti-oppressive, what tips do you have for them to stumble bravely? Hmm. Buddhism has impacted my life in various beneficial ways. And in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha said, there's three crown jewels of Buddhism. Like all the many things that Buddhism taught. The Buddha taught that there's a teacher, there's the teachings, and there's the community. The teacher being really wise, and you've been a teacher for me, Lisa. Nicole Lee has been, a, I'm so grateful. So look for some good mentors and teachers who've 
just thought about this stuff, like Erica and Nicole, when we were going through a time of conflict and awarepreneurs, and they said, Paul, is a coalition space supposed to be hard? I was like, oh, you mean I'm not doing it wrong? Oh, thank God. <laughs> I didn't know, right? They thought about this. So some good mentors and teachers. Gosh, are they a gift? And Lisa's, you've certainly been one. So anybody's listening, dig into what Lisa's offering. Then there's the teachings. What are the set of practice? An example in the diversity, equity, inclusion is Desiree Attaway talks a lot about liberatory consciousness and what that means and what that body of work around liberatory consciousness. I will never be the same having had some conversations and doing reading and continually learning and trying to apply what does liberatory consciousness mean and beyond the scope of what we can talk about here, but just search it and go learn about it. Desiree is a fabulous resource. And then there's the community, the teacher, the teachings, and the community. And of the three, the Buddha said, the most valuable is the community. And in an individual, capitalistic, me, my kind of world that most industrialized economies are dealing with in some way, shape, or form, so many of my teachers and collaborators, Genevieve being one, and the Native women that helped me unpack Tiwa Women United, Corinne Sanchez and Kathy Sanchez, and so many people helped me unpack my training as a Westchester County <laughs> white kid from the suburbs, Martha Stewart being 10 miles down the road from where I grew up, really deeply starting to understand what is community and how does it really work is some of the most profound helpful, painful, and important work I've ever done in my life. Thank you for that wisdom. Thank you for sharing. Thanks for having me on the show, Lisa. And congratulations on podcasting again. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm back after a 13-year absence. Right. She just went on vacation for 13 years. <laughs> well, Paul, I value your wisdom. I value our friendship. And again, I thank you for spending some time with me. Thank you, Lisa. It's so good to be here. I was in conversation with Paul Zelliser, founder of Awarepreneurs. You can find out more about Paul and all the resources mentioned in this episode by going to www.innerfieldtrip.com. Search for episode nine. My name is Lisa Renee Hall. Stumble bravely.